I'm just glad Nate's back from vacation. But tomorrow he gets to start the middle school vacation. Right, Jared? Yeah, Nate, Nate loves hearing that. I know he's not here right now. So when you see him, be like, hey, good luck on your vacation tomorrow. It's not, you know? I mean, I realize he's going on a trip, and we like to joke about him going on vacation, but like, that, that's his job, and that's a stressful, you know, week of making sure the kids are doing okay um, and giving them the best opportunity to know Christ. And I, I always love this opportunity to preach because, like you, you know, I'm just a lay person. I wasn't trained up in this. I just teach at a high school. I coach. Apparently, dive is all I'm known for now, even though that's the newest thing for me. Um, but like showing up here at 8 a.m. this morning and seeing you know, the, the sound check going on and trying to make sure it's ready to go for the basement and the team is up here preparing worship music to help put us in the right uh, state of mind. And so I'm just always grateful to have this opportunity um, and to know that our pastors do this on a weekly basis. And I have a month to prepare this and it's still like I'm up here heart pounding, like hopefully this goes well and they put in a ton of work. So I'm grateful for this opportunity um, to share God's word with you. Um, they gave me the opportunity to either go like in the series with Joshua, which I got my Joshua 1-9 shirt on for FCA. Shout out to FCA, a great organization that's helped me develop my faith. Um, but he also lets me just kind of, what's on your heart? And this last year, I think, was difficult for many of us, but as a, a teacher and coach, I got to see not just students, but teachers who just went through a lot of difficult struggles. And you could see their identity, you know, it, it's in school, but school's so difficult right now, and I'm not doing great, so I'm giving up. And teachers, my identity is in how my students perform, and they're not doing well. And so our identity kind of seemed to go up and down. And so today, hopefully, we can talk about how God sees us on an individual level and how that should impact how we see others. And so I wanted to actually start with, um, I have a basketball card up here. As a coach, I like the sports analogies. So most of you, hopefully, recognize that. That's Michael Jordan. My friend Austin Novotny, he's our high jump coach at Lincoln North Star, one of my good friends, three years ago, pulled this card out of storage. 25 years prior, him, his stepfather, and his brother, they loved to go to shops and just, let's open up the pack of cards and see what we got. And he opened up this card. And on the spot, the shop owner said, I'll take that for $400. One card, $400, 25 years ago. Michael Jordan's on it, and so he and his family were like, okay, if he's offering 400 this is probably pretty valuable, knowing how great he is. There is only 90 of these cards in the world. And then there's 10 that are the green precious metal gems card. So there's only 100 of these. There's the top 10 green ones, and he's got one of the 90. And so he's had this in storage for 25 years, and his brother's sitting on the couch, and like, hey, that, have you done anything with that card recently? And so they go to get it appraised, and they're like, we need to put this like, on auction. This is going to go for a fair amount. And so they put it on eBay for one week. And after two days, it's on there for five grand. The bidding's at five grand. One card, five grand. It goes on midweek, $13,500. And on the final seventh day, right before it's about to close, and he's watching it, you know, the countdown, like, is it going to get any higher? $19,600. So a little under 20 grand for that card of Michael Jordan. Unbelievable. And so he was able to then, after the commission for the auctioneer, walk home with $18,000 for a Michael Jordan card. That's a ton of money, right? I mean, is anybody just like, I mean, I was living this with him and like, oh my gosh, how much are you going to get for this? It's a card. It's a whole different world, like people keeping cards and trading them and the value of them. 
$18,000. He used that to remodel his uh, first floor, the main floor of his house, right? And that's a pretty good use. He needed to make some uh, changes with that. But he wanted me to also share the value of that $18,000, although it went towards that, was infinitely more valuable because he was able to have his father, who was recently diagnosed with cancer, and it was terminal, work on remodeling with him. And his dad didn't go to sporting events as he was growing up. And this is a guy who was like a 6'11", 6'10", high jumper, and went to Wesleyan, All-American, tremendous. And his dad only made it to about two or three events throughout his whole high school and college career. And so to him, the money value of that 18 grand was nothing compared to, I have one more year probably with my dad, and he's a busybody, and so if I can put this money to use in my house and spend time with him, that's the value, the relationship. And so I thought that was really telling um, how important relationships are and the value of being with one another. And then the crazy part is $150,000, that's what that card's going for right now. I know. But that's okay, because he had that time with his dad and they really developed a stronger relationship in that last year. But the fact that it was $400 on the spot when he first got it 25 years ago, he sold it for just under 20 grand, and now it's going for $150,000. The value of that card goes up and down. It might be more in 10 years from now, it might be less. What about your value? I know for me, I really struggle with my students are doing well, I feel like I'm valuable. They're not doing well, I feel like I'm not valuable. I feel like that card and my value is up and down, when in reality, in God's eyes, your value is set. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Right? The value we have in God's eyes, and in turn, how we should value and view other people in our, our workplace, in our families who maybe don't know the Lord. And so if you want to join me in prayer, we'll get into some verses, and it is going to be all over the place, but stick with me, and hopefully we can try to see ourselves and people as Christ does. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your truth. In a world that has many distractions, um, and throws different things our ways, difficulties, trials. We can always come back to your word and know that it is true. I pray that today's scripture would renew our minds and would help us to know that while we are sinful, we're far from perfect, you created each of us for a purpose. We all have tremendous value in your eyes because of what your son Jesus has done through his life, death, and resurrection. May we fix our eyes on you, our Savior, and your truth. We thank you, Lord, and we're excited for what you have to say today. In your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to start out in Psalm 139, and I could read this, like, weekly myself. It's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible, um, and it can be really challenging at times, too. So Psalm 139, we'll have the verses up here, and we'll just kind of walk through it, talk about some of the verses a little bit more in depth as we go. But how do you view yourself? Do you feel like... I don't really have a whole lot of value. I didn't get training like Andy or Jared or the pastors. You know, I'm just, I'm just a business person, right? I don't read the Bible as much as I should. I'm probably not as valuable as other people. Hopefully, we can be challenged by today's verses that we all have great value. So here we go, Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. And we're going to stop there. You have searched me. The meaning of that in the original language is you have excavated me. You have drilled into me and excavated everything possibly in there. God loves you. He knows you so intimately. He has excavated and knows every part of who you are, 
right? So really, God digs you. I know. That's not my own joke. I stole that. But I, li- I like that, right? God digs you. Even when the rest of the world right, makes you feel like you're not worthy, you're not important, right? He has searched you. He has excavated you. He digs you. He thinks the world of you. He loves you because he created you. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. Next verses. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You can keep going. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. So he knows what you're going to say before you say it. Like 10 years from now, when you're going to be mad at somebody, and you're going to start ripping into him, he knows that. He already does. He knows all the troubles that you're going to face. And so he hems you in behind and before. And that's like a military type thing, right? Hemming a hedge of protection around you. He is there on all sides helping to prepare you for what you are going to face. As Christians, we have a God who is in it with us, and we see that through Jesus Christ. He came into this mess of a world to face the sort of difficulties we did, and he overcame it. And because of that, God is similarly with us. He has his hand upon us as believers. He's going to walk us through it. And that's a, that's a great, I don't know, peace of mind for me, knowing that whatever future struggles I'm going to face, he's there. He's before me. He's behind me. He's all around me. And that's really reassuring. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. I know that's hard to understand that 10 years from now, when you're maybe struggling through, potentially going through a divorce, or you have the loss of a child, like, he's there. And he knows what you're going through, and he will be there. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Rhetorical questions, nowhere. If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my beds, my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. And we'll pause there for a second. I always wonder, why isn't it just, I praise you because I'm wonderfully made? Like, that fearfully part, I don't know about you, but it always kind of makes me pause. I'm like, what does that mean, I'm fearfully made? And as I was looking at some commentaries and seeking some wisdom on this from people who are far smarter than I am, the fearfully part, I don't necessarily have any more as a believer. But when you're first getting to know God, it can be kind of fearful to think, okay, so when I'm trying to hide in my darkness and I want no one to know what dirty secret thoughts or actions I have, I don't want anybody to know that. My spouse who I love, like I don't even, I can't even bring myself to let them know. God knows. And there's something maybe a little bit fearful for us to know that God so intimately knows every detail of your life that nothing goes unnoticed. So we're fearfully and wonderfully made. Fearfully, there's nothing you can hide. You can't hide in the darkness. Everything is light to him. And yet he calls us wonderfully made, even in the midst of the darkness that we have at times in our life. So praise be to God that even though we are sinful and fearful, 
He loves us and wants to pursue us. And we'll talk more about how he pursued us through Jesus Christ here in a little bit. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, even when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God has a book and it's eternity and you are a part of that. You are a part of the story. And that can really feel like, this is a big story. I have a part to play. But in Jesus Christ, you all have, we all have a role to play. He wants to use each and every one of us to glorify him, to make his name known. And so if you're sitting today listening to this and you're counting yourself out, scripture just told us right there, there is a book that God has written and you are fearfully, wonderfully made, and you have a a role to play in this. And so you can't hide in the darkness. We have to go out into the light. And for some of us, that's difficult because maybe we don't know the Bible well enough, and we're all at different points. But guess what? God knows what point you're at, and he can use you in any way possible. And so I pray that as we continue to listen to some of these verses, we'd be encouraged knowing that no matter what stage you're at in your walk of faith, you are fearfully, wonderfully made, and God has ordained what's going to happen in your life, and use that to glorify himself and help build up this body of believers. So our next set of verses is going to be about this guy, King David. And maybe some of us have heard about King David, but he was a man after God's own heart. And we'll look at those two verses in Scripture where it talks about that, but we're going to focus on the other verses about him in 2 Samuel. Chapter 11. And we'll read this, and some of you will be familiar with this story. But most of you are probably familiar with him, right? Defeating Goliath, and all right, he's awesome. He loves the Lord. And we kind of forget about this part of the story. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. So the kings are supposed to go off to war, but he's kind of settled into his comfort, and we'll have the other... Men go do it, but I'm going to stay back. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So what do we, anybody know what we call that, what he just committed? Adultery. Man after God's own heart committing adultery. Hopefully he just stops there. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. So David's like, I got to, you know, I did a lot of bad things here, so let's try to make his life a little easier. Go and wash yourself and clean up and stuff like that. He doesn't do it, though, because all of his friends are currently at war, fighting battle. I can't, I can't do that right now. I'm not going to take advantage of this opportunity. I know there's other people out there fighting. So his integrity is really, really high here. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? 
Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. So King David was trying to get him to go home to his wife, make love to her. That way, if she's pregnant, it must be your kid, and trying to cover this up. So he's compounding the adultery with trying to cover it up. Hopefully he stops there. He won't. At David's, at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. So maybe if I get him drunk, he'll go home and be with his wife. Still not. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he'll be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. That's a really encouraging story. But it is, when you look at two other verses in the Bible about him, that at first make no sense to me. And so we'll take a look at those. So we just have adultery, um, murder, those pretty serious sins. And yet the Bible says this about King David. So this is 1 Samuel earlier. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. So he's speaking with Saul, the previous king, and David is about to be king. And so he's saying, the Lord has sought out a man, which is David, after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. So Saul was not doing the right thing. So we're going to get a man after God's own heart. But this man after God's own heart committed adultery and murder. That doesn't make sense. And then in Acts, after removing Saul, that's the same concept here. He made David their king. God testified concerning him. I found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. And so as I'm reading this, I'm like, how is David a man after God's own heart? It makes no sense to me. And I can't believe God would use somebody like that. I mean, I'm not as bad. I've never committed adultery or murder, right? So I'm pretty good, right? And all of you are pretty good people. But in God's eyes, we have all committed adultery if we've lusted after someone. We've committed murder if we've hated somebody in our heart. Jesus says that in the New Testament. So all of us are like David, so then how can we, like David, be after God's own heart? And this is where I didn't throw more verses in here because there's just so many. But Psalm 51, if you're taking notes, Psalm 51, this is a psalm from David, the same David who committed adultery, committed murder. The prophet Nathan came to him and basically said, you were wrong, you need to repent. And ultimately, as I've studied the scriptures and looked at these, a man after God's own heart, a person after God's own heart is repentant. That's what God wants. Not somebody who has their life together and I'm always doing the right thing and I'm high and mighty, but repentant. And so here's a few verses from Psalm 51 that David, after this incident, in remorse, wrote. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, Wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Just like Psalm 139, right? He knows our sins. 
but we still repent. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And here's where he starts praying about how to overcome that sin. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. So David, after committing those heinous crimes, he didn't try to work his way back into God's love. He stopped where he was and he said, I am utterly sinful. There is no amount of of work, of burnt offerings or sacrifices I could make to atone for what I've done. God and God alone is the one who can cover those sins, who can blot out our transgressions and give us a new heart, a heart that is after him. And so what does it mean to be after God's own heart? It doesn't mean to be perfect, right? Your identity is not being perfect. Your identity is in Jesus Christ and repenting of our sins and acknowledging, I can't do this on my own. I can't work my way to heaven or be good enough. It is 100%, always has been, always will be, Jesus Christ and the work that he did on the cross. Now we talk about the gospel message, and I feel like sometimes we you know, say it really, really quickly because we assume everybody in church knows the gospel message. But we gotta paint it clearly here because there might be people in the crowd who don't know what the gospel message is. And even as believers, we need to just be in awe of this message of Psalm 139 that he knows everything, every sin you've ever committed that maybe nobody else knows. He knows it, and yet he chooses to love you. He chose to go down from his throne in heaven into this mess of a world that we live in that is imperfect. And his name was Jesus. And he led a perfect life. He was sinless where we, at least in my experience, I'm continually sinful. But he was perfect. And because he was perfect, when they put him on the cross and punished him to death, that pays for our sins. The shedding of his blood led to the forgiveness of our sins. If we would simply turn to him and repent, as we just saw in Psalm 51, repent of our sins and trust that Jesus came down from heaven. He's fully God, fully man, which I know is a hard concept to grasp, and that's a whole other sermon. But he's fully God, fully man. He led a perfect life, died on that cross, and the beautiful message is he wasn't just a good guy who died for a good cause and a good message. He rose again three days later. That gives us access to eternity, to eternal life, that when we pass away, we end up living on in spiritual form with Jesus Christ until the day he comes back again and we get new bodies, we're on new heaven, new earth, and we are all together as it was intended to be. But until then, what do we do in this circumstance where we still struggle with our sin and continually have to repent and turn to him What are we called to do? And this is where we're going to have our final verses. If we can put them up there. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. And if you have a a chance to memorize a section or look at a section and really meditate on it, these are some of the best verses, I think, in terms of clarity of here's what Jesus has done and here's what we're called to do. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... If you believe that message that Jesus led the perfect life, died for our sins and rose again three days later and you've trusted him as your savior, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. 
we no longer have to be like the value of that card up and down. Our value is set. We are saved. We can know and have peace of mind that we're going to be spending eternity with Jesus and fellow believers because we are in Christ. And all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself. I love that, who reconciled us to himself. We couldn't do it. It doesn't say we reconciled ourselves to him, right? He did the work to give us the opportunity to be in relationship with him and have eternal life. Praise be to God. And he gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed us to the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us on the cross, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So how does God see you? In light of Psalm 139, knowing every intimate, dark part as he's excavated you and sees into you, he sees you as righteous, as a believer in Jesus. Jesus' work on the cross, right, he took the full payment of sin. And if you've accepted that, when God looks down on you, he sees Jesus. He loves us so much. And so what are we, what are we called to do? We're ambassadors, right? An ambassador for like the United States, they go into a foreign country and they're there and they represent the United States. So in your job, in your friend groups, in your family, you are an ambassador. You are there to represent Jesus Christ. And that representation doesn't mean living a perfect life. It means sharing with people, what, you're sinful just like I am? Thanks be to God that we have Jesus Christ who paid that price for us. Be reconciled to him. Right? That's our job as believers is to encourage people to, to look at their lives and most people, and this is what I love about teaching, is like students, they're so open to conversations about faith. And they're like, yeah, I believe in God. Okay, you believe in heaven? Oh yeah, it's a great place. How do you get there? Well, you just have to be like good enough and have it outweigh the bad. How good is good enough? Is heaven perfect? Yeah, heaven's perfect. How can imperfect people get to a perfect heaven? And most of them go, I haven't really thought about that. And then we can be ambassadors for Christ. So just have conversations with people as we go throughout this next week. I want to challenge you to, first and foremost, think about your walk with Jesus. Where are you at? Have you trusted him as your savior? And if so, do you recognize that your identity is rooted in him and who he says you is, which is righteous? You don't have to live in fear of letting him down. You've never held him up in the first place. Can we please be ambassadors and share this truth and help people be reconciled to God that they might have this joy, have this peace, knowing that we can spend eternity with fellow believers in Jesus Christ for the rest of eternity. Now, you're probably like, another sports example, I can't help it, this is like what I do for my life, but this is Baby Ruth. Just kidding, Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth. One of the greatest of all time. Great at pitching, great at hitting. He did it all. Now in the top left there is a, a signed baseball bat. And I'm mainly going to focus on that, but you have a baseball there that's signed by him. And then in that picture is Babe Ruth and Victor Orsatti. 
Now, in 1923, New York was building a new stadium for the Yankees. And when Babe Ruth stepped foot in the first game in that stadium, he told reporters, if I can hit a home run in this first game, I'd give up anything to do it. Two months earlier, I think it's like the LA Herald or some group, um, had asked him to donate the bat that he hits his first home run in that stadium with to like the high school kid in the area who had the most home runs. That kid ended up being Victor Orsatti. And so in that first game, he did. He hit a home run, and so that baseball bat, he signed it and he gave it to Victor Orsatti, just a young high school kid who was the leader in home runs in a local like high school league. Now Babe Ruth's pretty good, so he knows it's a value, and he keeps it throughout his whole life. He ends up going and becoming a sports agent, um, and also working with people like, I'm going to blank on her name, who's in uh, Wizard of Oz, what was her name? What? Judy Garland, yeah. Her among others. I'm like, that was the fame. I had to look it up. I'm like, oh, Judy Garland. That's who she is. Yeah. The movie's overrated anyways. That's just how, that's just how I feel. Sorry if I... Now, now I'm offending people. And, okay. So he grows up, becomes an agent, fairly successful, and he's had this bat the whole time signed by Babe Ruth. And uh, eventually, he's at that stage in life where he knows he's going to pass away and he's... Um, at a medical facility and getting kind of long-term care. And the lady's name who's working with him is Marcia Napoli Tejada. And she did such a good job, and this is in 1984 now, so you think 1923 is this first home run in the stadium, signed bat. And then we have 1984. Upon his death, Orsati gave the bat to her, his private nurse. And she knows, like Babe Ruth, that's probably significant. You know, he was legit. And she just keeps it under her bed, though, not quite fully realizing the value of it. And it's not until 2006 she finally is like, I want to start a restaurant. Let's go see what this thing would fetch. $1.26 million. I know, it's so much money. $1.26 I know, I'm like, man, if Novotny would have kept his Michael Jordan card, eventually he could have given it to me on his deathbed, and I could have sold that for $1.26 million. But, so that bat, that bat alone, not the baseball, just the bat, that's $1.26 million. <laughs> I can't imagine that money. And so she used that money to start up her restaurant. And then I have some quotes here that I think can help us end on a good note, and we'll bring it back full picture here. So with some of the money, which I am sharing with um, the Sports Card Plus, the place that she uh, got the bat like sold through, so she gave money to them. I'm going to build an athletic foundation for orphans in Mexico City, she said. Ruth had a difficult time as a kid. He grew up in a home for boys, and he would want this done in his name. So the value of the bat was because whose name was on it? Babe Ruth. And so I'm going to use part of this money for something I've always longed for and dreamed for, building a restaurant, but then I'm going to use the rest to honor his name. And she said, the bat was valuable only because Babe Ruth's name was on it. Since he made it valuable, the only reasonable thing I could do was something that would honor his life. The only reasonable thing when you receive that amount of money is the value of that bat was his name. I have to honor him. Well, we get our value because of what Jesus Christ has done. And we have infinitely more value than $1.26 million, and I know that's hard to understand, but you're worth more than that in God's eyes. You are priceless. 
You're so valuable, and God wants to use you. So regardless of your sin, the mistakes that you made, we have value because of Jesus Christ. And so the only natural thing we can do, that I can do, is to then go out, share his name with others, try to glorify him. And when I don't, I repent, and we move forward. And so I don't know where everybody's at this morning. If there's people in here who don't know who Jesus is, maybe we need to talk more about who he is And I would love to have that conversation with you. I know our pastors would too. But if you've been doing this for a while and you've maybe lost sight of the value that you have in his eyes and how you can be used, my challenge is can we start stepping up and trying to to honor him? Can we let his Holy Spirit work in our life and try to impact the communities that we're working and living in? Right? I love that North Point, one of our big things is be Christ in your community. In order to do that, we have to be walking with the Lord, reading his truth, and renewing our minds daily. And so don't let this just be a Sunday good message. All right, we have value in God's eyes, and we're supposed to go and share this with others, and then tomorrow you go to work or do whatever you're going to do, and we lose sight of it. Accept that challenge. Let's let other people know that they can be reconciled with God and have eternal life with him. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that there's no amount of good works we can do to achieve salvation. I would never be able to, we would never be able to do enough good deeds to make our way to heaven. We would be destined for eternity in hell. And yet, because of your great love for us, you made a way. You helped us to be reconciled to you, and now our identity is rooted in your righteousness. You see us through the lens of perfection because of what Jesus has done on the cross, and I pray that we would be motivated by that message to be ambassadors for you. Help us to share your truth, to share your love on a regular basis with family, friends, coworkers, anybody we come in contact with, and that only comes through your power, the Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord, that we would be able to move forward from this message and live a life that is glorifying to you. In your name we pray.